Would you please take your Bibles and turn with me to Ephesians chapter 1. This morning we'll be reading together from Ephesians chapter 1 verses 3 to 14. Again, we'll be reading from Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 to 14. This is what Holy Scripture says. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time, to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ, might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thank you for singing what is my favorite hymn, Wesley's hymn, Oh, for a heart to praise my God, a heart from sin set free, a heart that always feels thy blood so freely shed for me, a heart in every thought renewed, filled with love divine, a copy, Lord, of thine. Here is a great, great prayer, and I trust as you sang the words of that hymn, you were aware of uh, what you were singing. God, in his great grace, has uh, enabled us to have his word And so I'd like you to take your Bibles this morning, if you would. You may open to the book of Ephesians. If you're getting particularly hot in the sun, please feel free to move. Don't feel like you have to suffer for our sake. Uh, There's some, you can carry a chair over into the shade, or there's a little bit of shade this way. We are all about, or pop the umbrellas, way to go, Marcy, great job, lead the way. Uh, Whatever's going to make you comfortable, trust that you will be able to do that. Uh, The last year and a half has... um, Frankly, it's been difficult in our country and in our province. The Christian world in Canada has been kind of fracturing like a northern Ontario lake in the spring, these long fissures of division that are creating uh, sort of these hiving off of different groups of formerly uh, aligned and identified people, Christians, who are kind of drifting apart from one another. And in some ways, 
the COVID-19 pandemic, uh, the government responses to that pandemic, I think has been used by God to peel back the drywall in our churches a little bit and expose some dry rot. Things I think must have been there all along, but the circumstances were not exposing what was really there. Professing Christians, both in the pew and from the pulpit, seemed in many cases to abandon the first principles of Christian behavior and Christian conduct, adopting the speech and the attitudes and the ways of the world, adopting the methods of the world, and then with the obedient, uh, um, the abundance rather of, of media outlets available, I fear that a lot of these voices have been having far too much influence on the broader Christian world and even in our local church. And I think they have been communicating in such a way that it has not done us good. It's been for ill. Oh, for a heart to praise my God, a heart from sin set free, a copy Lord of thine, to be full of love. One of the reasons I want to preach this little five-part series I'm beginning today entitled, Let's Just Act Like Christians. How's that for profound title number one? Let's just act like Christians. The first reason I want to preach this series is because all of us are influenced by what we read, what we see, what we hear. And if we're not careful, we're going to adopt some sinful ways of doing things unless we actively identify and avoid them. The second reason I want to preach this little series is because this is nothing new. The, the first church, the nascent church, the baby church, right from the very start, had some of this dry rot in it. And so you and I are always, as believers, trying to live as Christians in a world that is opposed to us, in an enemy that is against us, and with that enemy outpost of sin in our heart. When we got all that against us, we need to constantly be realigning ourselves to live like Christians. I think the Apostle Paul was brilliant. It's personal opinion, but I think he was absolutely genius. He recognized... And he identified bad behaviors, unchristian behaviors for what they were. But rather than just writing letters where he would say to people, hey, stop doing that. He would tell them why. He would explain to them why they should behave in a certain way. And it all began with this idea of identity. Identity. In particular, the identity they had now, having believed the good news of Jesus Christ and him crucified. Gospel belief leads to gospel behavior. Or stated another way, a new identity ought to lead to a new way of living. And that's where I want to begin this particular five-part series. I want to look at your identity. So if your Bible's open there to the book of Ephesians, that's where we're going to start. In fact, we're going to take this whole series from the book of Ephesians. Because my opinion, and maybe I'm wrong, you can challenge me later, that's fine. But it's my opinion that there's a kind of identity crisis among Christians right now. We don't seem to know who we are. 
And therefore, we don't know how we're supposed to act, how we're supposed to live. And when Christians get confused about their true identity, nothing good comes of that. And so this particular sermon is a call. I'm calling on you, members of Grace Fellowship Church, to shut out the loud voices of the world and worldly Christians, to open up your Bible, to just seek to be a really good Christian right here with these people that you're doing life with, these real humans who know you and you know them, the real people that you've made a real commitment to in this real local church. This is a call to the members of this church to just act like Christians. Let me begin with a story. Imagine a slave in an ancient kingdom. Perhaps he served very well, or perhaps it was just by chance. We don't know. But for some reason, the king of that kingdom adopts the slave as his son. Now, this was a formal action in the courts of the day. And at the end of the ceremony, that slave was taken from the courtroom into a, a side room where they took off his slave clothes and dressed him in new and beautiful robes fitting his new identity. A real and a massive change has happened. This person has transitioned from being a slave to being a son of the king. But he had lived his entire life as a slave. And this new identity would require him learning a new way of living. He was a slave. He had to learn to stop groveling at the feet of other people. He had to push himself to go first in line rather than last. He had to learn to speak up rather than waiting to be spoken to. In other words, there were new behaviors, behaviors that were foreign to him that he needed to do in order to live like a son of the king. This man had to conform his behavior to his new identity. Conform his behavior to his new identity identity. This is a picture, my friends, of what happens when you become a Christian. This great transaction takes place. You transition then from being a slave of sin to being a son of the king. And suddenly there's a new way to live. And it can be hard to shed the old ways of living. The old ways of living were natural to you. They came easy. Some of the new ways of living take thought and effort and even practice. And even when you do them, you may feel slightly disingenuous in the doing of them. But when God saves a person, he changes their identity. They become sons and daughters of the king. Frankly, there may have been things about the slave life that you didn't mind all that much. Didn't really have to think for yourself. Could be lazy. Nobody's looking. Didn't need to work at self-discipline. But now you're part of the royal family. And the expectations of that new identity chafe a little bit. You may be tempted to pull a Prince Harry. Like, yeah, I don't want that anymore. I'm going to search within myself to find my true identity. Sorry, that's not how it works. Nobody can choose their own identity. It is decided for you. 
In fact, as a son of the king, the more you live against his ways, the more the king is going to make your life difficult in order to call you back into living like one of his sons or one of his daughters. Imagine if this former slave runs away and throws off their royal robes and finds some slave clothes and puts them on and grovels at the feet of the king's neighbor. And the king discovers his adopted son there and he says, my son, that's not who you are anymore. You need to live in line with your new identity. Christian, when you understand your new identity in Christ, who you really are in the sight of God, what really awaits you in the great day. When you understand these things, it changes you. It changes how you live now. In fact, if you're living in worldly ways now, whether you're a pastor or an elder or a Christian podcaster, tweeter, TikToker, social influencer, if your actions are of the world, then you might be of the world, dead in your sins, heading straight to an eternity in hell forever. If you talk about following Jesus while you walk like a follower of Satan, you've got a big, big problem. John said, if anyone says, I love God and hates his brother. He's a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. This commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. Oh man, I'm, I am dead, dead earnest about this. Sometimes, my friends, we are fooled by a person's magnetism or personality or gift of the gab or platform or their perceived strength and wisdom. And that, that, that seems to cloak to us that the way they are doing what they are doing is full of sin. All that stuff, platform, personality, persuasion, all that stuff is junk. God is everything. You can have great theology and be dead in your sins. Just because you wear a nice suit and speak about being reformed doesn't mean that we should follow you and your ways. If your ways are of the world, it is time for all of us, just talking to us, to act like Christians, to get some identity integrity to get our performance in line with our profession, to get our deeds in line with who we are. We are sons and daughters of the king. And this morning, I'm going to remind you of what that means. I'm going to take you to monarchy finishing school. I'm going to help you remember who you are and whose you are. And to accomplish that, I want to take a shallow dive into Ephesians And show you that if you belong to God through Christ, you are chosen, you are saved, and you are loved. Identity. You'll notice that I am not saying 
uh, these, I'm not saying these things as I am statements. I am chosen. I am loved. I'm saying them as you are statements because your identity is not the rise and triumph of your modern self. You do not get to determine who you are. You have a maker. And if you're a Christian, you have a savior. You are not your own. You were bought with a price. Paul 1 Corinthians 6. God determines your identity. And it's a wonderful one. You you may try to skulk off to the neighbors in your slave clothes, but it won't work. You have the seal of God on your forehead. You are a child of the king, and that means something, and here's what it means. Number one, you are chosen. You are chosen. So Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 3. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3, all the way to verse 14 is one sentence in the original. The Apostle Paul sat down and just wrote this sentence. (laughs) This is what he said. We we can't do it in English that way, so we put breaks. (laughs) Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ. That means we have a relationship with Jesus. We're identified with Jesus. He's blessed us in Christ with some of the spiritual blessings. No, with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Even as, this is verse 4, he chose us in him, that's in Christ, before the foundation of the world. That we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons. That's just one term. Adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ. According to the purpose of his will. To the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him, this is in, in Christ... We have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. Verse 11, in him, in Christ, we have obtained past tense, and inheritance, having been predestined, an action in the past, according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. All things. So that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In Christ, in him, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, didn't just hear it, but you believed in Christ, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. The Apostle Paul is not writing to the whole world here. He is only writing to Christians. So if you have not repented from your sins and put your trust in Jesus Christ for your salvation, none of that applies to you. However, if you are a Christian, then all of this applies to you. And to be honest, it's one of those things we read and we go, man, that sounds too good to be true. If you're sitting there and going, eh, You haven't really understood the words yet. As you begin to understand what he's saying there, your response should be, that sounds too good to be true. That sounds impossible. It's too good to be true. That's why it's in the Bible, so we can believe it. Now, all I want to draw your attention to here 
is, is the work of God behind the scenes in saving you. What is often referred to as the doctrine of election. You see it very plainly in a couple of places. Look at verse 4. He chose us in him before the foundation of the world. That means what it sounds like. He chose us. Before God made the world, or any humans at all, he selected or elected or chose, you can use any of those terms, some to be saved. Which means if you're a Christian, you can know for certain that God had you in his eternal mind before there was a leaf on a tree. It was settled to him. You would be one of his children. And to make this doubly certain, look at verse 5. He predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ. To predestine means to set a boundary around something in advance. To to predetermine an outcome. Which means that we have a remarkably certain future. It is called here an inheritance. Which, of course, is what children of a king would expect, an inheritance. Verse 11, in him we've obtained an inheritance, having been predestined, there that word is again, according to the purpose of who? The purpose of him who works all things after the counsel of his will. The one who is sovereign over all. And this God ensured this inheritance by sending, verse 13, the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee, or if you like, the down payment of our inheritance. So when God saves a person and imparts to them his Holy Spirit, God places a down payment on their lives. The fact that the Spirit is ours guarantees that we will receive the inheritance, inheritance which is nothing less than God himself in glory. You are chosen. Before your mama was pregnant with you, the Lord knew he would save you. In his way, in his time, even if that salvation took place in your last few dying breaths like a thief hanging on a cross by Jesus. And because this choosing is an act of God in eternity past, before the foundation of the world, it's not based on anything in us. It is unconstrained and unconditional, and in this sense, it is a great mystery. That's why Isaac Watson, his hymn, wrote, Why was I made to hear your voice and enter while there's room when thousands make a wretched choice and rather starve than come? It's not because I was better than them. It's not because God saw some future worth in my life. It's not because he knew that I'd be a good person if he saved me. No, it was all of grace. And yet the fact is, because he chose us, our ears were unplugged. Our eyes were opened. Our hearts were made alive. All because he determined determined it would happen. And that doesn't lead to boasting. Far from it. It leads to the opposite. It leads to humility. It humbles us. It lowers us. I'm only a Christian because God in his massive grace chose me before the foundation of the world. It leads to humility. But it is a confident humility. Romans 8.31 If God is for us, the God who chooses in eternity past, the God who chooses before the foundation of the world, if God is for us, who can be against us? 
Not governments, not rulers, not viruses. Christian, you were a slave to sin and on the fast track to death. But God chose you and you are his. You are in his family. Nothing and no one can take you out of his family. Romans 8, 33. What, uh, who, rather, shall bring any charge against God's who? Elect. Same word. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Identity marker number one, you're chosen. Identity marker number two, you're saved. Look at Ephesians chapter two. Verse four. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, God made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It's the gift of God, not, as a, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Again, Let me just shallow dive into this paragraph and point out a few features of your new identity. Having been dead, you were made alive. That means you are a new person. Look at verse 5. Even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. Now, obviously, this is not speaking about physical death. Not at all. First part of the paragraph makes that perfectly clear. This is spiritual death. The fact is we were never spiritually alive. We were dead in our sins from the moment of our conception. In sin was I conceived. No one is born innocent. There are no clean slates. We are guilty and we are dead because of our sins. As Paul says, we are the children of wrath. And it was just then... When we were dead, that God made us alive. Who's, the, who's acting in that verb? God made us alive. We were dead. We did not participate in the resuscitation. God made us alive together with Christ. And this being made alive is described a few sentences later as being saved. Look at verse 8. For by grace you have been saved through faith. So the dead are made alive. The lost are saved. And once this transaction occurred, when God came through on his decision before the foundation of the world to save you, when he he proved his predestinating work was effective, at this moment you went from being really on your way to hell to really on your way to heaven. Your identity changed. You became a new you. Nature... Like an animal's nature, your personal nature, nature controls behavior. So zebras eat grass. Lions eat zebras. Each is acting according to its own free will. Each is acting, though, according to its own nature. Which means if you have a sinful 
nature, you will sin. You're acting according to your own free will, but all you can do is according to your nature, which is a sinful nature, which means you will sin. You, your sin is seen by what you do, by what you think, by, by what you love. You and I were slaves of sin and death, meaning our actions, our behavior was controlled by our nature, by our identity. So you've got Ephesians 2 open there. Look back to verse 1. You were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, meaning it was, you, you, you were doing according to your nature. You were walking. Your life was living out uh, who you are as a sinner, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived. Paul's not just passing judgment on everybody else saying I'm holy. He's going, I was there too. We all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were, look at it, by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. You cannot get more comprehensive than this. We acted like slaves because we were slaves. But once God rescued us, once God saved us from this, he made us sons and daughters of the king and our nature was changed. Our identity was changed. And now for the very first time, the door is open up for you to walk into the hall of good works, not to somehow earn your salvation far from it, but to live out that salvation that is already yours. That's why Paul says, verse 8, for by grace you've been saved through faith. It's not your own doing. It's the gift of God, this salvation. It's, it's God's gift, not a result of works so that no one should boast. If you think the way you're going to get into heaven is by being a really good person and you're going to sort of tally up all your good person stuff when you stand before God in the day of judgment, and that's going to, like, no. Because even your best things are still polluted by sin because you're living according to your nature. But once God saves someone, it's not, in verse 9, it's not a result of works so that no one may boast, for we are his workmanship. God's the one who does the work. God's the one who makes us alive together with Christ. God is the one who changes us. God is the one who acts according to his predestinating work. God is, the, it's his workmanship. We've been created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. The good works come after your salvation, not before. So from that new nature, from that new identity, flows new ways of living. You stop living like a slave and you start living like a son of the king. You become, in the words of Paul to Titus, a good works zealot. I'm just, I'm on the hunt to do good wherever I can because of my new nature. Because I want to live in line with my identity. Identity marker one, you are chosen. Identity marker two, you're saved. Identity marker three, you're loved. Kids, let me ask you a question. How do you know your parents love you? How do you know they love you? Well, maybe because they cheer for you if you're doing sports or in a club or something. Um, maybe because they, they feed you pretty regularly, food. Uh, they give you a place to live. Maybe you don't have your own room, but you've got somewhere to sleep at night. That's all tokens of their love. But I bet the one way for sure you know that your parents love you 
is when they look you in the eye and they say, I love you. Well, then you know, because I said it. Now, we can't look God in the eye. But God can look into the eyes of our heart by his word and tell us the same thing. I love you. And understanding that love is crucial. Go to Ephesians chapter 3 now. Paul has this very, very interesting prayer that he writes out for the Christians in Ephesus. He's like, here's what I'm praying. He writes out his prayer. Verse 14, chapter 3. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant, give to you, to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being. Pause there for a second. So his, his primary request is that something internally would happen in you, that you would be strengthened. Why? Verse 17. So that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you being rooted and grounded in love may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. There's a tiny little prayer meeting request. Now, for the sake of time, I'm just going to focus on verse 19. Paul prays, that these Christians would be granted the inner spiritual fortitude to actually, verse 19, know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. This is not something you can learn in a textbook. This is something that has to be revealed by God's spirit to yours. Look, Paul is is dumping all this deep theology on the Ephesian Christians because he knows, he knows that if if they start to comprehend the borderless, uh, dimensionless, proportionless love of God, if that penny drops, if they understand it, if they get it, if they grasp it, if they understand their current identity and status, it is utterly going to transform how they live. Chapter 4 is coming. I'm going to tell you how to live. But I'm loading it up here because you've got to understand who you are in Jesus, friend. If that son of the king gets up every morning and goes dumpster diving for his breakfast, something is wrong. Somebody take that man to the kitchen. Somebody show him the king's pantry. Lead him by the hand into the dining room. Introduce him to the cooks and the sous chefs and the butlers. Why on earth are you dumpster diving, man, when it could be eggs benedict with fresh coffee every morning? And if you don't like that, there's always frosted flakes. Your new father, the king, loves you. It is his delight to feed you. Christian, you are loved. Your father has lavished you with all the spiritual blessings in the heavenly places. You have a full and indescribable inheritance that is waiting for you. You are precious to him. He has given you his Holy Spirit to dwell in you, sealing you until the day of revelation. You are profoundly loved. The Father loves you, Ephesians 1, 4. In love, God predestined us for adoption to himself as sons. Ephesians chapter 2. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, made us alive together with Christ. 
The Son loves you, Ephesians 5.25. Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Ephesians 5.2. Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. The Spirit loves you, Romans chapter 5, Romans chapter 8. There are lots of things to doubt in this world. Mainstream media. Non-mainstream media. (laughs) That margarine's better than butter. But one thing a Christian must never, ever doubt is that they are loved by God. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. God shows, God proves his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. You can doubt me. You can doubt gravity. You can doubt the raptors really tried to sign Cal Lowry. But you cannot doubt you are loved by God if you are his. You are chosen, you are saved, and you are loved. Now and forever, amen. If you are his. If you are not a Christian, you are actually the opposite of all these things. Not chosen, but passed over. Not saved, but left to die. Not loved, but rejected. And praise God, my friend, it doesn't need to stay that way. That's what I was too. And you can do what I did. You can do what lots of people sitting around you did. Repent. Reject the old you. Turn your back on the slave to sin you and call out to God through his son, the Lord Jesus, to save you and make you a son of the king. Look to Christ the Savior. It is his great delight to save. The the door to salvation is open today. You don't need to ask, am I chosen? You need to ask, will you please save me? And when he does, then you'll know you were chosen. He always saves those who ask, who come in humble faith, who trust in him and in his finished work. And once he saves you, you will find that you too are chosen, you are saved, and you are loved. But you need to notice this. Chosen, yeah. Yeah, right? Chosen. Chosen to what end? Ephesians 1.4. He chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him. You're saved, right? Yeah, saved. Saved to what end? Ephesians 2.8 For by grace you've been saved through faith created in Christ Jesus for good works. You're loved, right? Yeah, loved. Loved to what end? Ephesians 5.1, to walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us. You see, identity changes behavior. You are chosen to be holy. You are saved to do good works. You are loved to love other people. Embrace your identity, Christian. 
Stop dumpster diving into worldly ways and worldly ways of talking and worldly values. You're a son of the king, not of the world. Pandemics and politics and problems of every kind are meant to expose a strong foundation, not dry rot. And of all people, we ought to be shining in these days with holiness and love and the good works of God, both in what we do and in how we do it. Fractures and fissures, they, they come from sin, not from circumstances. And as God allows us to regather and reform our bonds of love and commitment, let's be the kind of Christians who embrace who they really are and behave accordingly. Let's just act like Christians. What does acting like a Christian look like? God willing, that's where we will go next in precise detail in the weeks to come. Let's pray together. Oh God, you do not reveal these things to us that we might hear them once and then go on our merry ways. You would have us both understand and believe that we are loved by you, saved by you,